Now we are in Revelation 2, 8 through 11 today. And I've been with you here at this church for about six and a half years. I can't believe I've waited this long to tell a couple of my favorite stories and one of them is gonna be today. So here we go. Uh, when I was in seminary, I met a young man. We became very good friends. His name was Alan, not Alan Armstrong. When I first started seminary, Alan was probably in fourth or fifth grade in Sulphur Springs. So not, a, not the same guy. Uh, this guy, if I can... If I can describe him for you, uh, Alan uh, looked like, if you, if you can imagine Jim Carrey, the comedian, when he was uh, in his 20s, if you give him an East Texas accent and get him saved, that was my friend Alan, not just in physical appearance, but in personality. So he was a lot of fun to be with. Alan had already been a youth minister by the time I met him. He had, he had actually served as a youth minister while he was in college, which I just can't even imagine, a kid 19, 20 years old leading students, but he did. And like a lot of youth ministers they, you know, that are too, too young and dumb to know better, he took his youth group to Six Flags over Texas. So uh, they're at Six Flags, everybody's having fun, except there's this one little junior high guy, and he's, he's just sort of hanging out. He's not writing anything. And Alan said, you know, this kid was awkward even by junior high boy standards. And, and so he wanted him to fit in. He wanted him to find his place. So he kept coming up to him and saying, hey, buddy. You need, to, you need to get on a ride. You know, you need, to, you need to try a roller coaster. Try this ride over here. I'll ride with you. And the kid kept saying, no, no, that's all right. I'm having fun. I'm, I'm okay. And finally, he said, why won't you get on a ride? And he said, well, I mean, honestly, I'm afraid I'll die. And he said, well, you're not going to die. And so he made it his mission to overcome this kid's fear, right? And so he wore him down as the day went on with cold, implacable logic. He kept saying, listen, I'm, I'm willing to ride any ride here. I, I'm not a fool. And by the way, the people who run this place, this is their livelihood. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let these rides be dangerous. They could lose everything if somebody got hurt. And you, you've never heard of anybody dying at, at, at Six Flags, have you? Well, there you go. And so finally, finally the kid said, okay, I'll ride something. Now, at, at Six Flags over Texas, they had this ride, I don't know if they have it still, called the Cliffhanger. If you grew up around here, like I did, it, it was, they had a similar ride at Astroworld called the Sky Screamer, okay? Same thing. It was basically a, a metal cage, and you would put a couple of people inside, and they would lift you straight up, straight up, as high as you can possibly imagine, you know, up above the clouds, and you would get up there, and, and then they would push you out. I mean, this, this thing would just extend out over the, the chasm of space, right? And you would sit there hanging in anticipation for three or four seconds, and then you'd hear a series of beeps, beep, 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 and then down you would go, straight down. Not, not slanted, but down. Like you're about to hit the ground, and right before you hit the ground, you would level off and, and end up vertical, right? And, and so, or horizontal. And so, that's what the kid chose to ride. He said, yeah, I want to ride the cliffhanger. Go big or go home, right? So, so they're in, standing in line, and Alan is this funny guy, so he's making jokes with the kid, telling stories, keeping him distracted from what's about to happen. But when they get in the cage, it gets real, right? And they bring that cage down, and they lock him into their little seats, and they start going up, tick, 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 tick. And Alan is still trying to laugh and joke and, and keep the kid light, but he's starting to get paler and paler and his, his sweat's starting to stand out on his forehead and, and his knees are starting to shake and up and up and up and up they go. And Alan's thinking, you know, I don't remember this ride being quite this high. 
And he looks out and thinks, you know, I think I can see my house <laughs> in Tyler, right? And so they, then they extend him out over that chasm of space. And Alan says, you're okay, right? And the kid says, yeah, I just hope I don't die. And Alan says, but you're not gonna die. And the kid says, well, yeah, I know, but uh, I mean, I, I was born with a heart defect and uh, <laughs> I've had like five surgeries. And, and Alan looks at him and he says, hey, hey. And he's yelling with all his might, hey, hey get us out of here, this kid's gonna die. And it goes beep, 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 and down they go, straight down. So when the ride stops and they open the cage, Alan gets out and he feels like his whole body has turned into jelly. He's just, you know, he's Gumby. And, and he, he looks at the kid and the kid says, let's do that again. So do you know what the most frequent command is in scripture? Some of you know this, right? It's fear not, it's do not be afraid. That's what God told Moses when he was about to go stand in front of Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world, and tell him, let my people go. It's what Isaiah the prophet told King Hezekiah when Jerusalem was surrounded by the most powerful army on earth, and it looked like he wasn't going to make it. And it's what the angels said to the shepherds on the night Jesus was born. I mean, it's found all throughout the scriptures. It's also what Jesus says to this little church in a big, big city in modern day Turkey 2,000 years ago. And what we wanna look at today is courage and faith, but not just on an individual level. Like most of the commands in scripture, it's not addressed to individuals, it's addressed to a group. And so I want us to think, as we think about courage and faith, what it looks like to be a church that's courageous, what it looks like to be a, a church that breeds courageous faith and men and women who are willing to do what's right, even when it's risky. Okay, so let's start with Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, this is Jesus writing, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just as background, this church, one of seven churches that the book of Revelation was originally written to, was in a city called Smyrna. Smyrna was a big city for the time, 200,000 people. It was a very wealthy city by those standards. It was also considered a very, very patriotic city. They loved the Roman Empire. They loved Caesar. In fact, 23 AD, when Jesus was still alive, they built a, a, an actual temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar Tiberius, the, the, the reigning monarch of the empire. And in those days, it was compulsory. I mean, if you were a Roman citizen, you were required to sacrifice to Caesar once a year. And what that meant is you went into a, a temple and you burned a sacrifice and you prayed for the blessing of, of the king and you had done your part. And for the average Roman, that was no big deal. It was just like when you and I hear the national anthem, we stand or we put our hands on our hearts. That's, that's all it was to a Roman. But to a Christian, that was idolatry. 
To a Christian, that was, you don't do that. You don't bow to anybody. You don't sacrifice to anybody. You don't call anybody Lord except Jesus and him alone. And that caused Christians to be ostracized, especially in a place like Smyrna, where they were so hyper-patriotic. And you can imagine that when anything bad happened in society and especially in that town, they would say it's because of these Christians because they're not worshiping our gods and they're not bowing before our emperor. And Jesus writes to them and he says, I know what you're going through. You've got tribulation. You've got poverty. We can imagine some of the reasons why they were so impoverished, right? I mean, if if you're that group that everybody looks at as as religious freaks and traitors to the nation, who's going to hire you to harvest their crops? Who's going to hire you to, to work in their business? Who's going to trade with your business if you own a business? And so things were really tough for the Christians. Not only that, Jesus Jesus mentions a synagogue of Satan. What is that about? Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand that in the ancient Roman Empire, Jews were considered a protected minority. What that meant was the Romans, for all their many flaws, had some common sense. And they were able to see, you know, the Jews aren't hurting anybody. They're different. They worship one God and we worship many and they refuse to worship our gods, but they're really not hurting anything. So let's leave them alone. Let's just let them do their thing and, and, and then we'll, everything will be fine. And, and so the Jews knew that was, a, that was a unique thing. Not many other people groups had that status. So when the Christians come along and they're starting to grow and spread and, and the Christians are this group that worship a crucified Jew, right? Who they claim has risen again. So the Jews must have thought, oh, these people are a threat to us. People are going to associate us with them. And so when they do weird, freaky stuff, we're going to get blamed. So let's do everything we can to disassociate ourselves from them. And so you can imagine this this synagogue, this this Jewish community in Smyrna doing everything they could to, to make the Christians out to be as bad as possible so they could separate themselves. We're not like those people. We are loyal. And Jesus says, I know what you're going through. None of it's easy. The Romans don't like you. The Jews hate you. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But his verdict in verse 10 is, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Now, I need to say this real quick. Because again, most frequent command in Scripture. It does not mean that it is a sin to feel fear. That it is a sin to feel worried. That it is a sin to feel anxious. It... You can't help what you feel. You understand that, right? If you whack your thumb with a hammer tomorrow and you're going to feel angry about that, that is not a sin to feel angry. Now, if you pitch that hammer through your windows, through your neighbor's window, that is a sin, right? It's what you do with the emotion that's sin, not the emotion itself. I know this. You know how I know this? Because the night before Jesus was arrested, just hours, in fact, before he was arrested, The scriptures record for us what he did. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane, this olive grove that he and his disciples went to often to pray. And he asked them to pray for him. And then he fell on his face and he began to pray to God. Say, Lord, if there's some other way, I know what's about to happen. I've been, I've been, this is what I was born to do. But Father, if there's some other way for me to rescue these people without drinking the full cup of your wrath, I pray that you would let me know. You know that I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But if there's some other way. And Luke records for us that Jesus was in so much anguish that the capillaries under his skin began to burst and he began to actually literally bleed or sweat blood. This is fear that none of us have ever felt before. And yet Jesus was the most perfect person who ever lived. The only person who never sinned. It is no sin 
to feel fear. Let me say it again a different way. If you've got something hanging over your head that terrifies you, doesn't make you a weak Christian or someone with less faith. If you're a person uh, who struggles with anxiety and maybe you even take medication for anxiety, that does not make you a person of weak faith. What you feel does not make you a sinner. It's how you respond. So do not fear. What does it mean? In the same verse, he says, but be faithful. That's what he means. He means no matter how scary things look, no matter how afraid you may feel, do it anyway. Do the thing that you know is right. Be faithful. Be obedient. That's what courage looks like. Courage is not waking up one morning and feeling like you can run through a wall. Courage is saying, I don't want to do this, but I know it's the right thing, and so I'm going to do this. So let me just ask you, what is your greatest fear? I don't mean spiders or clowns or heights or sermons that go on too long. I mean, what is something that stops you from doing what you know to be right? What is, to put it another way, what is some good thing that you would do if it wasn't so scary? I'm going to give you some examples and they're going to put them on the screen. Uh, these are just examples of things that I've struggled with or that friends of mine have struggled with because of fear. Here's one. I would have a difficult conversation with someone I know and love who is making bad choices. Anybody else here? have a hard time having difficult conversations with people who are headed down the wrong road? Yeah, that's a terrifying thought because sometimes those people get mad at you. Sometimes those people judge you. Sometimes those people don't speak to you again. Sometimes you lose friendships because you can confront someone over, over bad behavior, over a, a terrible habit or an addiction or, or their, their status that needs to change. Here's another one. I would trust God with my finances if I wasn't so afraid. I want you to hear me say this. This is not me as the pastor of this church asking for more money because the, the, the honest truth is this church is doing well financially. Y'all are giving faithfully, or at least some of you are. I don't know who gives. <laughs> Thank God I don't. Uh, that's not my purview. But I know somebody's giving because the church is doing fine and I want you to keep doing that. This is not about we're in some kind of financial trouble because we're not. This is about the fact that, that God has given us all things. He's given us our bodies, He's given us our minds, He's given us our relationships, and He's given us our financial resources. And all of it, all of it, all of it can become a hindrance to us unless we give it back to Him and use it to glorify Him. So, so don't let yourself feel this fear that says, yeah, but if I become generous, then I can't afford the things that I want. And cheat yourself out of the joy of participating in the work of God with his resources and feeling the financial freedom of saying, I trust you enough, Lord, that you're going to provide better for me, even better for me when I'm generous than when I was keeping it all for myself. Then there's this one, I would pursue transforming relationships. If you've been here more than a Sunday or two, you know that we have a goal that in, by the year 2030, we want to have recorded 10,000 10, transforming relationships. And what that means is 10,000 different times that members of this church have invested in somebody else, either a Christian who's struggling and needs help or a non-Christian who just needs an influence, somebody to draw them closer to Christ and, and hopefully lead them to him. And I know fear stops us from doing that because we think, yeah, but what if he figures out what I'm doing and, and then I'm that crazy religious guy or yeah, but, but yeah, I don't have a lot of time. It's sort of like the, the financial part. I, I, can't, I can't give up my time to invest in other people. I, I don't have enough time as it is. Don't let fear stop you. 
Here's another one. I would treat with kindness and love people who are aggressively hateful. That's that's just a fancy way of saying, I would love my enemies. I would pray for those who hate me. I would forgive those who've hurt me. You know, the danger of that is that people aren't afraid of you anymore. And, And all of you are nice to me, so I don't know who it is, but I'm sure there are people in this room who have a reputation in your workplace or, or in school or whatever is, oh, he's really tough. Oh, she's, she's really mean. You don't want to cross her. You don't want to get on his bad side. And you enjoy that, right? But if you become somebody who follows Jesus wholeheartedly and loves his enemies and forgives those who've hurt her, then you might lose that reputation. You're afraid you might get taken advantage of. You're afraid people might, might disrespect you. Here's another one. I would offer Jesus full obedience. The Bible doesn't talk in terms of, of A-list Christians and B-list Christians, varsity and junior varsity. I mean, there's just one kind of Christian and that's the one that's been born again to new life that is a disciple of Jesus that follows him wholeheartedly. And there's a lot of us that have crossed that, that barrier of saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe he can save me. In fact, I believe he's the only one who can. But we've still not made that step of saying, I want you to run every aspect of my life and I want to serve you with everything that I am. I want to write a blank check with my life because we're afraid of what might happen next. What if he makes me give up some habit I enjoy? What if he makes me, what if he makes me go move to some distant land and become a missionary? What if, what if he makes me do things that I don't want to do? Don't let fear stop you from obeying God completely. And then here's one more. I would stop letting worry steal my joy. See, earlier I said, it's no sin to be afraid. It's no sin to feel fear or anxiety or worry. But when you let that fear, anxiety, or worry linger so that it takes away the joy and the peace and the other fruit of the Spirit that we're promised as God's people. And can I be very blunt right now at the risk of generalizing? I know I'm generalizing when I say this. But of the people I know who who struggle with this, a lot of them are very faithful Christian women. And there's a reason for that. I think it's because there's a lot of women who who look around them and they see that most of the men in their lives are just overgrown boys. And they say, okay, I need to to take charge of this or or things are going to go straight to hell in a handbasket. And so they carry so much stress so much anxiety because if I don't worry about this, nobody else will and it's going to crush us. So I better worry about this and this and this and this. And if I'm not worried about that, it's going to kill us. And, and you get to the point where you have no joy and you have no peace because you're carrying all that burden. You're letting fear steal that. I don't know if any of that lands with you. I don't know if any of those, uh, any of those you can identify with, but there's something in your life that you're afraid of unless you're a very, very remarkable human being, something, some fear that's stopping you from completely obeying God. Whatever it is, I want you to confess it to Him today. You don't have to do it publicly, but you have to do it before Him. Ask Him for the courage that it takes to do the right thing and then do the right thing. See, Jesus, here's the bad news, never promises that our fears are unfounded. In fact, He talks to the Smyrnans and He says, listen, some of y'all are going to be arrested You're going to go to jail for 10 days. And listen, 10 days doesn't sound so bad, but back then jails weren't for the purpose of punishment. They were for the purpose of holding you until your sentence could be carried out. Jesus doesn't say at the end of 10 days, you're going home. The next thing he says is, but be faithful unto death. See, this was the time in history when the Roman Empire really started to crack down on Christianity. 
And over the next couple centuries, many, many young Christian men and women paid with their lives for their faith. And Jesus is saying, be faithful unto death. If you do, you'll get the crown of life. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, what you fear the most might actually happen. It might actually happen. But what's that? What's the worst they can do to you? They kill you? That's a promotion. The worst thing this world can do to you is actually one of the best things that will ever happen to you. So why are you afraid? I love what he says. He says, you think you're poor, but you're actually rich. Think about it. uh, Fear always comes from a poverty mindset. Why are we afraid to have a confrontation with someone who needs to be confronted? Well, we're afraid we'll lose their friendship and then we will have less friends. Why are we afraid to, have, uh, to forgive an enemy? Well, we're afraid that we will, our reputation will be damaged by that experience, and, and we, we're worried about that. Why, why are we afraid to be generous? Well, we, we don't want to lose our financial resources. God says, I've got all that. I've got all, I've got all of that that you could possibly need, and whatever you lose from me, I'm going to pay back hundredfold. So why are you afraid? I've never failed you yet, and I won't fail you now. He will be with you in the storm. See, what I'm looking for, what I think God is looking for, is the courage of these three boys that we read about in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love that story, and my favorite part is when they're standing in front of the king. And the king of the nation, Nebuchadnezzar, is the second hottest thing in the room, right? He is furious, But the hottest thing in the room is that furnace that they're about to be tossed into. And remember what they say to him? They say, listen, our God is stronger than you and he can rescue us from you if he wants to. But even if he does not, that's my favorite line in the whole book of Daniel, even if he does not, we still won't bow. We're still going to do the right thing. Even if it costs us our lives, we're going to trust in God. We have cast our lot with him and we won't change. Now, can I just confess something? I am not by nature a courageous person. Never been a daredevil. Probably never will be. You know, if you're going to be a daredevil, it probably happens before middle age. It's not going to happen for me. And so, so there's this scripture that's been meaningful to me because I, I've been praying for courage, especially since I went into the ministry uh, a long time ago. And it's Proverbs 28.1 that says, The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Righteousness makes you brave. What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing the will of God. See, what I've learned as I've prayed for courage, you might say, well, why do you need courage? You're not a cop. You're not a soldier on the front lines. You'd be surprised. I need courage and so do you. Here's what I've learned. When I pray for courage, I don't wake up tomorrow feeling like an action hero, like I'm I'm ready to fight 10 bad guys an army of ninjas or whatever. That's just not what happens. I feel the same. But what happens is, when I pray for courage, God puts me in positions where courage is required. And when I obey Him, I come out on the other side. And I'm more courageous than I was at the start. So I'll give you an example. When I was 21 years old, Carrie and I had been married a couple of months. We got married May 23rd. This was about this time of year. That's when I felt called to the ministry. Let me tell you something, guys. It's a really sorry thing to do to a woman, to marry her and then two months later say, hey, by the way, how'd you like to be a pastor's wife? 
So I was terrified to tell her this. She already didn't like me much, right? Because you know, early days of marriage were tough. And then I had to tell her this. And, and would you believe early one morning, I, I just spilled it. I, I think God's calling me to the ministry. She kind of processed for a minute. And she said, you know, since I was a teenager, I felt like God was calling me to, to be the wife of a minister, that I was supposed to support somebody who was in full-time ministry. I knew God was going to call you someday. I just didn't know when. And that was great confirmation. But then I had to tell her parents. Now, Carrie's parents were extremely godly and Christ-loving people. But Carrie's dad had been a chemical engineer, had run refineries, was, was just a really financially successful person who had provided well for his family. And I'm going to tell this man that I'm taking your daughter into at least two decades of poverty. Uh, she's not only going to live in a glass house, it's going to be a glass house with wheels on it that's single wide and is in the bad part of, you know, the sticks. Um, and, and I was terrified. I remember it was on a Sunday afternoon after church, Carrie made a roast and invited her parents over to our apartment and Carrie makes a really good roast and, and yet I couldn't eat a bite because I was so scared about what I was going to tell them. And I finally just told them and they said, I, I can't believe you'd be afraid. You know, of course we're going to be happy that a member of our family is serving the Lord. But then, then it got worse because then I had to actually do it. And see, that next May was the first time I actually preached a sermon. And, and I remember it was Mother's Day, Mother's Day 1993. And I, I showed up, my church that I grew up in, great little group of people, but very, very small and the whole time as I was preparing my sermon, by the way, I found those sermon notes a few years ago, pulled them out of some folder and I looked at them and there were like 20 points to that sermon. <laughs> uh, you know, I figured I'd tell you everything I know about God in about seven minutes. But, um, but I, you know, the whole week I'm, I'm telling myself, it's not gonna be bad. These are the people who've known you your whole life. Even if you do terrible, they'll still love you. And I showed up, and it's, it's weird how things can throw you off, right? I, I walk in the door, and the first person I see is a guy who's not a member of the church. It's a guy I went to high school with. I didn't know this, but he'd started dating a girl in the church, and he showed up that Sunday, and I, that just threw me. He's not supposed to be here, right? And he goes up, he goes, hey, Jeff, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm visiting my parents, you know, what are you doing here? And I remember thinking at that moment, what am I doing here? I'm not a preacher. I... I Who's going to listen to me? I don't have the, the credentials and, and I can just get in the car and drive back to Houston and let's face it, they're going to forgive me. I mean, they've known me my whole life. They're not going to cut me off. They'll probably be glad to go home early anyway. I don't need to get, I don't need to do this. But that third song finished and I made that long walk up to that pulpit and I grabbed it with both hands as tight as I could and my knees were literally shaking and I delivered that 20-point sermon in about seven and a half minutes. And, and you know what's funny? What's amazing is now and for the last, I'd say last, at least the last 20 years, Sunday morning is my favorite time of the week. I love getting to preach. How did I go from being terrified and dreading it to, I can't wait to get up here and talk to you about what I've been studying about all week. Because the Lord answered my prayer. Because he put me in a position where he said, go do this. I know you don't want to do it, but do it. And I did it. And the fear went away. You want to become courageous? Face your fear. You want courage? You want to become bold as a lion? Then do what God has called you to do. I'm, I'm challenging you today to go home and make that phone call. 
or, or set up that appointment to, to meet with that person who you need to talk to or to uh, write that check or, or start that habit or, or end that habit or whatever God's calling you to do. Because remember this, remember this. Jesus is there in the garden, his face covered with dust, blood dripping from his pores, his stomach in knots. It's the last thing in the world any human being would ever want to do. And what does he say? Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And he got up from there and he saw that mob coming and the torches and, and Judas right in front and he didn't run. And he didn't call down fire from heaven and roast them all. That would have been awfully satisfying. No, he went to the mob. Looked at Judas and said, do what you came to do. This is why you and I are saved. So if you want to know what to do when you're afraid, you go to the one who had that kind of courage. The greatest courage that ever existed. And you say, Lord, I need what you have, what only you have. Show me the way. Get me through this. I will walk with you through the fire.